Well, peace be with you. We, before we break down this Hebrews passage, let's have the kids come up. So, uh, little kids, come on up. Come up here. Yep, yep, yep. Come hang out with me for a few minutes. Oh my goodness. Hi. Yeah. Hi. Don't worry, this one's mine. I Um Yeah. Hi guys. I'm Matt in case you're new to this. I'm Matt. Hey Matt Yeah, good to meet you. All right. So, um I, I for this lesson I I have a question. I want to start with a question. Okay? You guys? You ready? You listening? Um, and it's kind of like you don't have to think, so you might have to really give this some serious thought. So if you, if you need a moment, I'm okay with awkward silence. If you need a moment to think through it. All right? Um, when do you feel the most loved? I'm not going to answer that. Oh. You're not ready to? Hey, parents hug us. Okay. Campbell's parents, listen up. Yeah. Hu- okay, so, so Campbell says hugs. When I get hugs, yeah. Like, 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 like um, um, my, my Ruby's right there. Ruby probably feels the most loved when she's cleaning her room. No, I do not. no she does not. <laughs> I'm just joking. Anybody else? Be willing to share. When do you feel the most loved? Like, maybe it's when you're hugged. Like, 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 I bet you, you, if you get up in the middle of the night and you're worried or you're scared, you run, potentially, to mom or dad or, you know, to get hugged. So, somebody else was raising their hand. Was somebody else raising their hand? No? What do you, when do you feel the most loved? Okay. Anybody else? When? When, when my mommy and daddy kiss me. When they hug you? Kiss you? Fantastic. When you're with him. Oh, yeah, so you're like a, a quality time. That's your love language, huh? That's all right. That's my kids, too. Hugs. Hugs. Well, yep. When you're hanging out with them? Okay. Back there. When I, hey, man, girl. When I get, she said, when I get to watch TV. <laughs> yeah. When my mom and dad When you get to play video games. Okay. All right. All right. It's okay. No shame. What, what, what you got, Sean? Um, when, when I get to go camping with my dad. When you get to go camping with your dad. There it is, dad. Okay, right here. Camping. Okay. One more, and then we're over here. Yep. When do you feel the most loved? When they kiss you and hug you. There you go. And what? And then when you go camping? Okay. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. So here's why I asked it. That's an important question. 
I, I would encourage, like, it's one of the fantastic ways we can love each other as people to figure out when do people feel the most loved. Like, we could just this morning, if I asked you, some of, some of you that, when do you feel the most loved, you know? That could generate some serious conversation, especially amongst you married couples, um, and in between friends, too. But here's why I asked the question. All right, listen, you ready? Because here's the Bible. Here's where the Bible comes in. There's this great line. It's in 1 John 4, 18. Um, and it says, perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. And so what that means is that it's, it's this idea, Right? The, the, the person who wrote that is writing about this idea, this idea that love and being worried about something or being afraid of something, they're not being loved at the same time. They're not compatible. So that's like why when you get scared, like maybe at night or something like that in the middle of the night and you run and you get hugged and you immediately feel better, it's this idea that perfect love, like pure love, it drives out fear. Like, we have this dog at home. Anybody got a dog? And, like, my dog, what she does is she drives out squirrels and rabbits. Right? That makes sense to you, right? She chases them. She chases them out of the yard. Well, the idea is that love, pure, perfect, pure love, it drives out worry and fear. And so God's love, like that's why we want to, as Christians, like what's so important is to let yourself be loved by God. You understand? Let yourself. One of the saddest things in the world, you want to hear one of the saddest things in the world? Is when someone doesn't think that they're loved. And so I want you to understand that you are deeply, deeply loved by God. God loves you more than your parents do, which is crazy because I know your parents love you a lot. Amen, parents? Amen. Amen. And so I want you to remember that. I want you to let yourself be loved by God. I want you to let yourself be known by God. I want you to learn how to go to God when you're worried or when you're afraid. And all you got to do is say this. You right? Look, this is it. And then you're getting juice boxes, okay? So all you got to do is close your eyes. Can you do it? Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. And just say, God, God, I'm afraid. I'm afraid, yep, and I know you love me. Let me feel your love. There you go. The next time you're afraid, just do that, and you keep doing it, and you keep doing it, and you keep doing it, okay? And then go on today and tell your parents when you feel the most loved, okay? All right? All right, thanks, guys. Get your goose boxes right there. Adults, can we clap for them, please? hand off. (coughs) All right. Okay, guys, so thanks for letting me talk to the kids. And parents, thanks for let, lending me your kids there for a minute. I appreciate it. Um, if we can only just get these little bite-sized nuggets into them. It's so important. 
Um, today I want to talk to you about spiritual discouragement. Okay? Sound good to you? Spiritual discouragement. Let's talk about that today. I heard it said recently uh, from a pastor, author, um, the church, talking about the big church, uh, the church is entering an ice age, is what he said. And um, I first heard that statement actually over a year ago, you know, when the, the pandemic first hit, I heard that about the economy. The economy is going to enter this ice age. You've probably heard those things, similar things. Now, it's interesting, I'm hearing it in regards to the church. Um, does a comment like that have merit to it? Do you think it has merit? Um, look, I, I'm not sure uh, exactly what to expect. I mean, the, the tides are shifting everywhere we look, right? Like, it, 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 everywhere. Foreign policy, economics, culture wars, tribalism, employment shifts. You know, people are leaving their jobs in the droves for another other jobs. Um, with all these changes, what I've noticed, maybe you've noticed, with all these massive shifts everywhere, you've got all the amateur prophets and pundits, they come out, and then they start making their predictions, right? They start, this is what the future, this is what's in store for you. Some of it's terrorizing you, some of it's not, but that's what happens. Now, here's the thing. I'm not sure exactly what to expect, but I'm not blind to the incredible amounts of change I see taking place in the church. That's for sure. Uh, Numerically, churches across the country are shrinking at a rapid pace. And does that mean that Christianity is shrinking? Uh, Numerically, yes, probably, in the West, at least in America. It does. Uh, Here, look at this latest Pew research for yourself, if you can read it. I tried to highlight. Here's kind of a look. The red column is the dropout from the faith, and the gray column is the ad, people claiming more and more the growth, I guess you could say, of people saying, I'm not going to affiliate with anything religious. And so uh, you've got the silent generation. I don't know if there's any silent gens in here, but silent gens, y'all are doing pretty well. <laughs> So there's only a 2% drop-off. Baby boomers, 6% uh, 6 drop-off. Gen Xers, where are my Gen Xers at? Anybody? We're we're at uh, 8%. Millennials, 16%. Yikes. Uh, And then I guess Gen Z is not on there. Are there Gen Z? Is there Gen Z? Is this Gen Z? All our hope is in you. Uh, (laughs) You guys, sorry. Midwest, overall, just the Midwest in general, where we live, 10%. This is, so this is just, you know, broad-based declines in share of Americans who say they are Christian. That's not good, right? I mean, that's just, it is. I mean, I just show it for what it is. Uh, you can take that down. Um, to be honest, here's the thing. I, like, it might shock you after showing that to you. I'm not a doomsdayer. I'm not. I, and I, hear me. Regardless of size and uh, institutional power and influence, I actually do think our most fascinating and beautiful days are ahead of us. And I want you to hear me say that, and I really do mean it. It's genuine. I really feel that way. I'm not one for tired, played out, 
positive thinking cliches. I'm not for those. Uh, I mean it when I say that I'm hopeful because of the history that I'm continuing to learn that's clearly laid out in the scriptures. Like clearly, like nothing could be more clear uh, among many of the themes, but this one, there's this prominent theme in the scriptures of how frequently God loves to do his best and creative work with small things. So I, I'm fascinated by this. As much as I, it saddens me to see people leave the church or leave the faith, it does. I don't want to hear me wrong. I'm not celebrating that, but I'm not hopeless at all. I'm more curious. It's driving me into curiosity because every time I look in the scriptures, it's like anytime something like that takes place, it's like, man, God just loves to flex his creativity in those moments when you least expect it. When, when God's people look like they have less and less power is when God's power seems to show up. And man, I want to see God's power flex in such unexpected ways. Do you? Like, I want things to shift in such a way where the church looks pathetic and helpless, and then all of a sudden, boom, God shows up. That's so exciting to me. There's this little throwaway line, if you don't believe me. It's in Zechariah 4, verse 10. It says, do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. I love that. However, that being said, um, I'm, the future will have discouraging moments for you. If you are here this morning, you're listening, or you're listening online, and you call yourself a believer, you're, you're trying to work out this life of discipleship to Jesus, which is what we're trying to do here as a church. If you're trying to do that, I want you to know you will have discouraging moments in front of you. you, you and you maybe feel it right now. Maybe you're listening to this right now, like I'm discouraged right now. It's difficult and it's disorienting to watch your friends and your family drift away from following Jesus. And those numbers, let's not pretend like the numbers that I showed from the Pew Research where like, we think that that's just out there and that's not here. And that's not in our friends and in our families. Come on, we know that it is. I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands, but people are leaving. People are leaving. And it's discouraging and it's disorienting. It's difficult to pursue what feels like a godly calling uh, to not only um, look around and wonder why are, there few, why are there so few people interested in this anymore, right? Like, if you're one who's finding yourself more interested in Jesus in this day and age, you look around you and you, you see less and less people interested. And you're like, why is that? Am I the weirdo? Even in this church, I'm sure that there are those who are deeply discouraged because they've lost so many companions in their work of serving. You know? Yet we're doing a service fair, and part of that's just because we've just lost so much servants. You know, I think this church numerically has dropped off 50%. I mean, it's crazy. So, you know, and that's discouraging for people. I know, I know we got some tired folks in here because they, they do so much. They work all the time. To be truthful... It's just hard to see that kind of drop out. And, 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 you know, there's all sorts of reasons for it. And some of it's we couldn't predict. Some of it we can't control. Some of it's maybe all of it isn't our fault. That's not what I'm getting at. This isn't a, a thing on, I'm, this isn't a guilt trip. Um, but bad news, hard times, lots of sickness, complicated health and vocational decisions. Um, people's attention, I mean, it's just been completely hijacked for the last year and a half if not longer. 
And people are deeply disconnected. They're isolated in some cases. And so many spirits are feeling low. None of this, what I'm saying to you is probably a shock. Um, I say all this because if, if you haven't figured it out, that in large part, that's why we decided to ex- explore a book like Hebrews, um, right? Because in one sense, I love Hebrews because it normalizes spiritual discouragement. In one sense, Hebrews is saying, hey, look, um, you're spiritually discouraged. Okay, like it's, you're a human being. You should expect that. It's part of the deal. It's what it means to be human. It doesn't make, it doesn't, the, the writer of Hebrews never makes light of spiritual discouragement, but it reminds us that you're not strange if you somehow find yourself in a place where you're discouraged or you're feeling spiritually dull. Um, to be human is to be a complex creature of highs and lows, spiritual, emotional, physical. I think at some part, like we don't even know how to listen to our bodies very well, which is why we don't even know when we're spiritually discouraged because we're not even sitting still long enough to actually listen and feel the things that we feel. And to be Christian is to be someone called out to the, to the work of fighting for hope. Like, that's much of what it means to be a Christian, is to try to work towards hope, holding on to it. It's to be someone reaching out to God for peace in a restless, violent, and distracted world. I want to say at the onset here, as I kind of talk to you about getting out of spiritual discouragement, I want to say, because I always want to be transparent and honest with you, I really believe that climbing out of spiritual discouragement to some degree is a mystery, okay? Please hear me say that. Uh, the, the timing of when you get clarity on what's going on with you sometimes takes weeks, months, maybe even years. Like, it just takes a long time sometimes to figure out what's even, you know, have you ever been in a place where it's like, hey, I'm not doing well, and then somebody loving says, well, what's going on with you? And you can say, I just don't know yet. Like, I can't, I haven't put my finger on it, you know? Thank God we have therapists and things like that, counselors, people that help us excavate this stuff. I'm for all of that. And so sometimes it just takes time to get clarity. It takes time. Um, uh, there's a mystery to when we get a jolt of energy uh, or a sign of something good from the Lord. Um, you know, like sometimes you can just have these fluctuations even within a week. I know just this past week, I mean, I just, on a Wednesday, I had a moment of prayer which is how I try to spend most of my Wednesdays. And, and man, God just showed up in a way that he doesn't normally show up for me on a Wednesday and gave me a real gift. And I'm not going to tell you about it because it's between me and God. And some things are better left secret. Some things are better left secret. And if you don't have secret, intimate moments with God, I encourage you, seek them. But my point is, I had to wait weeks and months for that, <laughs> for that moment. And I, I had no control over that when God decides to show up in that kind of a way. But here's the thing. What I really want to talk about today is in some way there is, and this is important, there, I'm excited to say there is something we can do when we feel spiritually discouraged. It's not talked about enough in certain Christian circles there is some agency I think God calls us to. It made me think this week, there's this line um, Henry David Thoreau wrote. He says, men will lie on their backs talking about the fall of man and never make an effort to get up. 
Hebrews doesn't just normalize spiritual discouragement. I think it makes much of Jesus to motivate you into putting in the effort to get up, right? That's what Hebrews wants to say. Hey, you do have some agency here. You do. That's hopeful. That's not like, there's a way of speaking about agency and responsibility and turning it into legalism and putting all this pressure on you. That's not what I'm doing, and we have to have the ability to understand the difference. This isn't about earning anything, but this is about saying, hey, God has given us a certain kind of agency and responsibility to seek him and to try our best to find ways to get out of the ruts and the the, places of feeling stuck. I mean, just go... Go type in Amazon feeling stuck and watch how many books come up. It's the new thing. It's the new rage. The Bible was talking about it a long time ago, long before the New York Times bestselling list. At the bottom of the chapter in Hebrews of chapter 10, he'll say this in verse 36, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And if you look closely at the little short passage we read, the author is stating his conclusion on a long and in-depth work that he's been doing through chapter 7, 8, and 9, and we didn't even get into 9 today, of just talking about Jesus and what he represents. And basically it's saying, hey, like all this stuff in the Old Testament that you read, the blood, like Mike was talking about earlier, the sacrifices of animals, some of the stuff that if you're unchurched, or even if you're churched and you read in these books like Leviticus and these other books, and you go, this is weird, dude, what is this? Animals are getting cut. There's blood being sprinkled. There's incense burning. It's like a religious hippie thing. What is happening here? And all of it is these copies. It's all copies, right, of the real deal, which is Jesus. It's supposed to help us understand really what Jesus represents and who he is and that he's the perfect sacrifice. And he's been trying to, the writer of Hebrews is probably drawing that out for us, making sure that we understand that. Um, that he isn't the copy, he is the thing. He's the, he's the sacrifice, he's the perfect priest that all these copies were pointing to. And then he draws, this, the, por- the portion we read is just his conclusion on it all. He's trying to give them confidence for their discouraged hearts. Keep it in context what the book of Hebrews is all about, which is endurance. He's saying all of this is meant to motivate you into action. You should have confidence and hope, not hopelessness. He says, this is 22 through 24. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and let our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let me tell you, as a preacher, so seldom do I ever get the text, just lay out the outline for me and right there it is. After a big, long conclusion, or drawing out all of these things about the high priest, he just lays out the application with three let us comments. Right there it is. Let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us consider how to stir up one another. Now my point is this. This right here is your strategy, your threefold path, if you want to call it that, for spiritual discouragement. That's what it is. Spiritual drifting. It's a strategy for fighting back when you are spiritually bummed out, when you are spiritually stuck. This is what he calls us to do. Now, there's more that we can throw into the strategy. I get that, I, for sure. But it will never be less than these, and I want you to know that. It will never be less than these. 
You'll, you'll get a not holistic, you'll get some kind of fragmented Christianity and discipleship unless you have all three of these. And now, um, I understand when you read them, let us draw near, let us hold fast the confession, let us consider how to stir up. You're like, what? How do we put that into practical strategies? Well, here's what it is, because I've been thinking about it, obviously, for a long time. Once you get behind the meaning of these words and phrases, it's actually quite simple to name them. Here's what he's talking about. Prayer, spiritual practices, and people that provoke you to love. You put these three things in your life like your life depends on it. Prayer, practices, and people. Prayer, practices, and people. Here's what's tricky about that strategy, because I know what you might be thinking. It's so cliche. <laughs> like, it's so, it's so uninteresting at first glance, and therein lies part of the problem. We're always looking for a new, cool, sexy strategy when the tried and true fundamental is what we need. It's this one. We, part of our problem is, is we lose a sense of imagination, a sense of wonder, a sense of enchantment with the basic things like prayer, like spiritual practices, and like getting together with other people for the purposes of, being, of encouraging each other. Now, let me just explain it a little bit. Now, I would love, I realized, I would love to do three separate sermons on this, and I can't. So I will be very brief on prayer and spiritual practices, not because they're not important, but because I don't have time. And I'll labor on the third one, people that provoke you to love. But let me just say this on prayer. He says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Most scholars I consulted on this phrase, drawing near, they all agree it's nothing less, uh, it's, it's nothing less than at least a call to prayer. Obviously, we can draw to near to God in other ways, but for sure, at baseline, it is prayer. The call to prayer when discouraged is what's happening here, and that should not surprise any one of us, right? Particularly if you're churched. But think about it for a moment. Just before we move on from prayer, just think about this for a moment, because it is so common to us. Or maybe it's not common to you. I love how author John Stark puts it. This is just, I love this. He says, prayer is either the greatest insanity or the most wonderful news. It is calling for God, it is calling on God for his attention. Why would we think that this is a good idea? Either we must put on divinity or he must put on humanity. Which is more reasonable? Both seem like madness, but only one is good news. That's good. This is the good news to which Hebrews has been rehearsing over and over and over again, that Jesus is fully God, and he has taken on our humanity, right, to show us how near he wants to be to us and that we can draw near to him. That's what this book has been getting at. Prayer, uh, when spiritually discouraged, might be difficult because you might be like, dude, when I'm discouraged spiritually, the last thing I want to do is pray. That's the problem. I know. I know. So let me just ask you, um, why? Where are you at? Right? Let's get super practical with it. Are you praying? And if not, why? Ask yourself the question. Like, right? We name things to tame things. That's what we do around here. Name it. 
Why? Are you mad at God? Are you, you mad at somebody else? Are you doubting God? Are you just distracted? You know, and if you're like, dude, I am praying all the time. Okay, then you're not part of this conversation. Um, but like, name it. Why? Now, here's what I would say, just for a couple things. Um, if it's guilt, reference the whole book of Hebrews. <laughs> like, if you feel guilty and that's what's holding you back, like, right, it's in this comment itself with a true heart and full assurance of faith. I mean, you, the whole idea here is, is if you look at Jesus and what he's accomplished on your behalf going to the cross, you don't have to feel guilty going to him. You don't. Draw near. If prayer is unfamiliar to you, now listen to me, please. I want you to hear this. Uh, if, if prayer is difficult, like you don't know what to do, it feels awkward to you, I want you to, I want you to know, join the club. It's really hard. And if, if nothing else, like if you, if you stink at praying, here's what I would say. If nothing else, decide that you're going to do it daily and you're just going to sit in silence. You're just going to sit there. Maybe you have no words. And there's plenty of anchor prayers that we could go to. We use one each week, the Lord's Prayer. But like, if you're still just like, I don't even know, that just feels weird and rehearsed to me, just sit in silence. Start somewhere. Start somewhere. There's, a, there's an old story about Mother Teresa. She was once asked in an interview by someone, what do you say when you pray? You know what she said? Nothing. I say nothing. I listen. So the interviewer, assuming he understood what she meant, said, oh, okay, so what does God say to you while you're listening? She said, nothing. He says nothing. He listens. With a look of confusion on his face, it got awkward and silent. She finally broke the silence and said, if you don't understand what I just said there, I'm sorry. I can't explain it any better than that. There is something very sweet sometimes about just sitting in the presence of God, knowing you're in the presence of God, and saying, I don't need to clutter it up with words. Start there and watch what happens. My guess is eventually you, it will lead you into things of praise, things of gratitude, and things, of course, that you feel desperate for and need. Now, uh, the second part, the practices part, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This is a common phrase, this um, hold fast. This is a very common phrase in the Bible. It's throughout the Bible. It means to control, occupy, restrain, and hold down. And that's funny, right? Think, think about it. Sometimes you have to stop and really think, ponder over the language being used. What is he saying then? Hold fast. And the word for confession there is the word for agreement. So what he's technically saying is, is you need to restrain your agreement that you've made. You need to hinder it. Um, so really what he's actually getting at is he's saying you need to control and restrain the gospel truth in your head and your heart. Jesus is faithful to rescue and complete you, and you need to be faithful in remembering it and living it out. So um, how do you restrain and hold down a truth? How do you do that? Like how do you make sure a truth is always in front of you? Like if you're married, you're married, that's a truth for you, 
So how do you remember that you are married? You're like, I would never forget that. Okay, but you know, we've got these things. We've got rings, right? Like we have things. We have symbols. We have rituals that we do. We have, it's the same. I would say this is a call to spiritual practices that sometimes we often neglect because we think, oh, it, therefore if it's ritual and it seems mindless, it must be bad. Wrong. Wrong. In large part, I would say that this is, what the pan, this is why the pandemic made us crazy. It's not just simply that you know, millions of people died, which is a humongous part of it, but it's also the simple fact that all of your structure, your routines, and your practices got disrupted, and you, and you didn't know it was happening to you. And now you're sitting around wondering, who am I? You've been deformed. Deformed. And you have to begin to take it seriously of how you are going to reform yourself. Reform who you are and who you need to be and who you want to be. There is this sense of agency in taking control of your life and saying, I have to consider and think about what's happening to me and who I, and who I am becoming. Because the practices and the routines to which you give yourself to are turning you into somebody. So who are they turning you into? So uh, and, and when I talk about spiritual practices, I'm talking about Sabbath, silence, reading scripture, fasting, singing, serving, giving, And again, like I said, I could make these all separate sermons, and I won't. Um, These are just all things we very clearly see Jesus doing in preparation, not only for his ministry, but then his preparation for the cross. Some of us don't realize that Jesus had to prepare. You think because he's fully God, it's like he doesn't need to prepare himself. Yes, he does. That's why he sneaks off and prays all the time. That's why he fasts. That's why he still went to the synagogue. He Sabbathed. He did things like this, all in preparation. He knew he would get discouraged. You can read about his discouragement. You can read about the moments that he felt sad. He had to have practices in his life. I'm not saying he failed in them. He just knew the importance of them. And you're not Jesus, right? Like, I think that's fair to say. So we, of course, then know we should need them too. Now, if, if you need help with these spiritual disciplines, again, I totally get it. And good for admitting it, by the way. Good for admitting it. Goodness, I've, I'm losing patience for the people that don't have the ability to admit that they're not good with spiritual practices. Good for you if you're the person who's able to admit, yeah, I, sh- I just think I need to learn more about fasting. I think I need to learn more about prayer. Like, I, I think I might be only scratching the surface here. Good for you. Welcome to the club. And there's plenty of stuff that we can give you and help you if you reach out and say, hey, I want to learn more about this. So all I would say is this. Spiritual disciplines are not about merit. They're not about earning anything. They have nothing to do with managing your guilt. Nothing. What they are is about managing your hope. You need practices in your life that you commit yourself to that manage your hope, not your guilt. Jesus is managing your guilt, right? You need to manage the hope that you have in him, keeping it in front of you. Now, lastly, um, uh, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
so it's been funny, right? Like uh, this verse, these two verses, um, I've heard particularly Hebrews 10.25 quoted more over the last year and a half than in my entire life, right? Why? Because people don't go to church anymore. Now listen, I get the idea, right? People don't gather to worship as much as they used to. If you look at the national averages of attending ga- worship gatherings, it's like, it's, it's, it's really bad, right? It's like once a month at best. Um, to keep it in context, as some people forget to do, and they often miss this, these people being told this are neglecting to meet together because of spiritual discouragement. That's the reason why they're not meeting together. They either fear uh, persecution or they are sick of being persecuted or possibly they're just in a place where they don't see any fruit from gathering. Um, we don't exactly know. Um, maybe, maybe they're sick of people that they meet and study the Bible with in their town. Maybe, um, maybe the hospitality has become too difficult for them. Maybe uh, they're sick of the weird personalities in the room. I don't know. All of those, they were human beings. They were no different than you. All of those were probably playing out in their situation. And he is calling them to push through that and not neglect meeting together. Now, we don't know the reasons. Either way, the the writer of Hebrews knows you don't just need prayer. You don't just need spiritual practices. You need people. You need human connection. Human connection. Feeling discouraged can isolate you and feeling isolated can further drive your discouragement. Now, I, I, I want to be really clear. I don't think the devil, in my experience, and I've been a Christian for quite some time now, I don't think that the devil is primarily concerned with getting you to commit some grievous, horrible, life-disruptive sin. I think the devil is occupying himself with either, one, getting you distracted and busy, or two, just getting you alone and isolated. I think that is how he knows he can get you off course. Because it's subtle, it's subversive, and you don't know it's happening to you. And that's when he's doing his best work. If I walk up, if I wake up in a bed with some other woman, it's not like I'm confused, right? It's like I know, oh no. This is a horrible thing I've just done. But if I'm just busy doing other stuff, constantly running around to other things other than prayer, scripture, singing songs, attending gatherings with other Christians, serving, giving, you know, although if I'm just doing other stuff, then I just like bad stuff, but I'm just doing other stuff. I'm being formed into a completely different person and I don't even know it's happening to me. And the devil's like, gotcha, gotcha. So, um, go look at Paul's writings, like Philippians 2, which is a book just about encouraging people. And he won't just talk about prayer or spiritual practices. He'll, he'll talk about sending specific people, like Timothy. You need Timothy. I'm going to send him. He's going to cheer you up. Or Paphroditus. Like, Paul knows. Like, we need people to speak in and encourage us when we're discouraged. Like, Paul clearly assumes Spiritual encouragement requires the help of friends. But as I'm sure you've noticed, there, there's this kind of quality and feel to the gatherings the writer of Hebrews has in mind. Uh, not all human connection is the same, is it? 
That's, you sh- that's where your hearty amen should come in. Not all human connection is this, like, it's not always encouraging. Uh, thank you. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you. And none, we're not talking about any people that are here right now. It's, some, it's other people. But let's be honest, there are some gatherings and human connections that we can attend to and we can make that leave us more discouraged than encouraged. Amen. Instead of feeling deeply loved, grateful, and hopeful about our future, some human connections we make make us feel like beating our head against the wall. You see, what's interesting to me and some people have used this Hebrews passage to bemoan the lack of attendance to church. What's interesting to me um, is I never hear the same bemoaning over what we're called to do when we gather, which is encourage each other. You see, here's the thing, friends. Um, if, I don't care if you're in church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, you're attending online, you're doing everything possible to show you're in a small group, blah, blah, blah. If you are always uh, grumbling, and you are the discouraging presence that shows up to the room every time, I promise you, you are no better off than the person that doesn't come. That also should be an amen. Let's just level the playing field. You understand? Because let's read the actual verses. What is he saying? The whole point is about encouraging one another. (laughs) The whole point is about building each other up into love. Like, if we're not, if we're, if we're, if our gatherings are just about numbers and money and whatever else we're doing, and it's not about becoming love, then we've missed the point. The whole point is to become more loving people. The, the writer of Hebrews doesn't simply say meet together, he says meet together to stir up and encourage one another. Now, that word stir can mean to literally irritate. <laughs> it's like, amen. It can mean to irritate or even disagree. It can mean to have a sharp disagreement, but the nuance in the context means to provoke or motivate, which is why a lot of the translators get it right when they use those words, like stir, provoke, motivate. He's saying as often as you get together with other Christians, make it your mission to provoke each other into love. That's what you're supposed to do. Now, the point of our gathering is in part, to learn and remember the hope that we have in Jesus, but it's also meant to be a place of mutual comfort and motivation to keep doing the hard work of being known and being loved by Jesus. And we all have a part to play in this. We're not all responsible for each other's, like, we're not responsible for each other's souls. We are not. Um, But we are responsible to bring a creative and curious mind to the gatherings that we attend, of thinking of ways to say to people, essentially, I see you, I'm, and I'm here for you. And I get it, it's complicated right now. Like, with like COVID, like I don't, there, there are reasons that some feel like necessary to not be in person. And that's why I would just say all the more to think, okay, for those that can, make sure we don't forget about them. Let's reach out to them. And for those that are feeling isolated, you need to reach out. There is mutual responsibility. We share it together. We all have to do our part in this. I don't care if we have thousands of people in the room. It is futile if everyone shows up for themselves and brings a spirit of grumbling 
and to focus on the preferences. And this has in part been what's plaguing, man. I've seen this growing. This is what's plaguing the American church. We have so smuggled in our, our consumerism, our consumer mindset into our participation into the church. We forget what we're actually called to meet for. We forget these passages because of this consumer mindset. We must be, like all of us, myself included, we have to be so careful uh, when we are constantly focused on getting the music that I like, the preaching that I like, the small group that I like, the discipleship group that I like, the opportunities to, to move up or be in the leadership that I like, the coffee that I like. I don't know how anyone's complaining about that, but when we, when we are so consumed with our preferences, you know what happens eventually if we're not careful? We conflate our preferences with God's preferences. So now, all of a sudden, I've spiritualized my ideas. You see, yours, different than mine, are not godly. What in the world makes you think that somehow your idea of music or proper dress or culture or art, style of worship, is somehow more holy than theirs? Because you like it? Because it makes more sense to you? We have to be so careful with this. We have to flip how we think about, oh wait, yes, there is something that I get in gatherings. But I can't miss the fact that there is so much that I'm I'm supposed to go give. This is about other people. What do I bring to the room? How do I show up? If we gather not just for ourselves, but for the sake of others, God does something really fascinating with our imagination. He gives us this ability to bless people with our mere presence. Like, man, can I just say, as I wrap up here, can I just say some of you in this room, and I won't name you, it's not so much what you say, man, it's just like, it's the way you show up, it's your presence. Like, your presence, you're grateful. You're, you are so easily edified. You, there are people in this room, you are so easily edified. Meaning, you are so easily encouraged. Like, we can have a sloppy set of music. You know, I, I'm sorry, Kyle, that never happens. But, <laughs> like, it could be like, like crap music, crap preaching, like mics that mess up. And you're just like, man, God moved today. Man, I just, like, it was good to be here. I, had, I got a hot cup of coffee. I got to see my friends. I got to take communion. None of that was disrupted. Easily edified. And just being in your presence. You don't even need to say anything to me. I go home, and I think, I'm going to show back up next week. You understand what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's that important, and yet we overlook it. There are so many people like that in this church, and I love it. You're not thinking about what you're getting. You're thinking about what you're giving all the time. You're like, hey, how can I get a ton here? I, I, I just need to think about how can I help? How can I contribute? How can I love? It's so inspiring. It's so contagious. In the same way that anxiety is contagious, man, so is gratitude. And so as we come to communion this morning, as we come to the bread Jesus' bread, his body broken, the cup, the wine, Jesus' blood shed, the new covenant 
given to us by Christ and his work. As we come to it this morning, remember this. This is John 13, 1. It says this, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. So just before he's going to the cross, it says, having loved his own and who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In Jesus' most discouraging moments, and you can read about this in the upper discourse in John 13, 14, 15, 16, like you can read all the way through that. And it's like, man, when Jesus is at his saddest and most discouraged moments, man, he clung to and held on to and loved and encouraged his friends. Loved them to the end, the Bible says. Gosh. Like, we're not, have, we're not martyrs in this room. We're Americans. And Jesus is literally dying for his friends, and he's still loving them. So whatever negative thoughts, struggles, doubts, or bitterness you might be feeling these days, Jesus is not the one failing you. He's not the one abandoning you. I get it. He's not here in the flesh, and that makes things difficult and weird and strange. I, I understand that. But his spirit is ready to fill you. So seek him in prayer. Remember him through spiritual practices that you, that you literally have to practice. You have to exercise and fumble your way through them, and it might take years to grasp just one of them, and that's okay. And tell other Christians what you're experiencing as you do it. That will encourage them. So when you're invited to come forward to this station or this station, take a moment, please, to just reflect on any of these things. Think about the ways in which you need to go out and be an encouraging spirit, an encouraging presence to people. Let's look out for each other, right? Let's confess the ways that we've given over to grumbling and not gratitude. These are just things that we all play a part in. And so you're invited to do that. Father, we love you and we thank you. And um, Father, we are going to claim and we're going to trust that you'll love us all the way to the end, that you'll hold us as we have fickle faith sometimes, we have fickle temperature, uh, that we sometimes we feel spiritually high and sometimes we feel spiritually low and um, we need your help. Father, in our worst moments, in our hard moments, God, give us, give us the courage to, to, to take a knee, to kneel, to, to take a walk, whatever it requires of us to be silent before you to plead for your mercy, to plead for your help, to, to, to just like what we talked about with the kids, Father. Help us to say, God, I'm scared. God, I'm worried. God, I'm confused. I know you love me. Let me feel it. That's our prayer. And as we take the bread and we take the cup, may we remember your love and that you're there for us all the way to the end. It's in Jesus' name, amen.